The UN says that humanity stands on the brink of catastrophic man-made climate change. But is it true? Not a chance. But we do stand on the brink of catastrophic government policies that threaten to ruin the nation our forefathers built and defended against tyranny. So what drives the climate scare, Jay? Besides simple ignorance, the scare is driven by corporate greed and the desire of governments to control all aspects of our lives, Tom. Is this part of something more sinister? Indeed it is. Whether it's climate change or a pandemic or socialism, it really means sacrificing your rights and accepting the tyranny of the fourth branch of government, the bureaucracy. It must be stopped. This is The Other Side of the Story with Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris of the International Climate Science Coalition. Senator Joe Manson, a Democrat from West Virginia, he's been villainized by climate campaigners in the media, Jay, because he's not supporting Joe Biden's Build Back Better package over the past week. I mean, what do you think? Is Joe Manson right? Well, of course, Joe Manson is right. It's only sad that he continues to be a member of the Democratic Party and that we have this one fellow who is the deciding vote in the Senate that uh, allows things, crazy, tyrannical things that this administration wants to do. He's holding them up. And thank goodness he stopped the uh, H.R. 4, which would have taken all the voting rights away from the states and uh, had everything done in Washington, D.C. He's holding up the Build Back Better, which, of course, is really Build Back Worse, just flush a lot of money. But uh, it's exciting at the moment. He's our savior. Yeah. And in fact, the Build Back Better plan, it includes a half a trillion dollars in useless climate investments. I mean, really, Jay, does humanity control the climate thermostat? <laughs> you know, it's it's amazed me, Tom, for I've been studying it since 40, more than 40 years. I remember vividly when all the popular magazines talked about another ice age coming. That would have been about 1975. When that didn't scare people enough because the world is controlled by fear, they switched to global warming. And when it didn't, the globe didn't warm, they switched to climate change. And of course, the climate's always changing and it has nothing to do with man. In fact, we'll talk with our guest today about that. And I think he and I probably will even disagree with how little man actions control the Earth's climate. Yeah. And yet across the world here in Ottawa, my hometown, hundreds and hundreds of cities, they're declaring a climate emergency. I mean, since 1880, 1.1 degree temperature rise Celsius. It doesn't sound like an emergency to me, Jay. Well, it certainly isn't an emergency. But what amazes me is how incredibly stupid these, po these populations are. Uh, an entire country can do whatever they want and won't alter the temperature of the earth. And that in the United States, that would be true of any state. But now we're talking about towns declaring climate emergencies with the stupid idea that something they could do would affect the climate of this planet in the next hundred years. 
Yeah. In fact, in Canada, there are dozens of little small towns, you know, like 20,000 people who are declaring a climate emergency and how they're going to lead the way to stop it. I mean, it sounds pretty crazy. You know, our guest today is a great person to speak about all this sort of thing, Dr. David Legates. He's a professor of climatology and an adjunct professor of statistics at the University of Delaware. He's going to be our guest today. He served as Delaware State Climatologist from 2005 to 2011. Dr. Legates testified before both the U.S. Senate and the U.S. House committees and has given more than 125 invited presentations. He's recognized as a certified consulting meteorologist by the American Meteorological Society and is the recipient of the 2002 Boeing Autometric Award in Image Analysis and Interpretation by the American Society of Photogrammetry and Remote Sensing. So welcome to the show, David. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm rather thrilled to know that you're an expert in statistics as well as climate, because uh, you then are capable of uh, analyzing all the lies that are put forth by our own uh, National Aeronautic and Space Agency that will constantly say last year was the warmest year on record and all kinds of other lies like that. And a good statistician can go into their data and realize how false it was. But I want to know when you first got involved in the global warming fraud, a difficult thing to do as a professor at a university today. Well, it's a long story, but I'll, I'll keep it quick. Uh, essentially, coming out of high school, I wanted to be a weather forecaster. I wanted to be the, the next Joe Bastardi before Joe Bastardi was on the, on the stage. And essentially, I applied to the University of Delaware, to the University of Maryland, and to Penn State. I came to Delaware, and John Mather said he'd been a weather forecaster in Boston for a number of years. And uh, this was, uh, dating myself, but it was late 70s. And he said, you know, in the future, weather forecasting is largely going to be done by computers. The big issue in the 1980s and beyond is going to be climate change. Applied climatology, those are the things you should get involved in. And that's the kind of thing we're developing here at the University of Delaware. Uh, I didn't know whether he was selling me a, a bill of goods. Uh, so I went over to Maryland. I walked in literally off the street. I asked to talk to somebody and they set me down with an old gentleman, turned out to be a very famous climatologist, Helmut Landsberg. Oh, yeah. And, and Landsberg said, um, essentially the same thing that you don't want to do weather forecasting. You want to do climate change and climatology. And we don't do that here at the university of Maryland. I would encourage you not to come here. And I said, well, I've also applied to Penn state. And he said, I just got out, you know, I just left Penn state. They do forecasting up there real well, but they don't do climatology. And so I would encourage you not to go there either. And I said, well, this is interesting because John Mather I uh, just talked with a Delaware has given me the same thing. And he said, I just reviewed that program. You should get in on the ground floor of that. And the, the punchline is I've never been to Penn State. <laughs> well, your work at Delaware has really been outstanding. I've been reading your things and hearing your lectures for many, many years. And uh, in my terminology, you are absolutely on the right side. But I'm guessing that you've run into some opposition both at the university and with the state itself in the last couple of decades. Oh, yeah. that's <laughs> And with the federal government, too, apparently, because even under um, 
more pleasant administrations, let me put it that way, the, the deep state people tend to be, how can I say it very politely, they tend to have their own biases. Unfortunately, that seems to run deep. The thing that's bothered me is the university, like I said, I've been at the University of Delaware in one capacity or another. I left for 11 years, but I've been there since 1978. Uh, I've seen it go from a, a, a true university to very much a woke leftist organization that has agendas and access to grind and money to make. It's why I've decided I've had enough and I'm going to retire starting January 16th of this coming year. So I'm counting down the days. That's uh, from here. It's about 18 days to go. Well, you know, it, it is sad, and I have share an experience with you. I'm a Princeton graduate, and my 65th college uh, reunion for the class of 1957 is taking part in, uh, in mid-May, and I'm literally being forced uh, to go because I played a prominent role at the university for a very long time, but without really mincing words, it today is a a communist hotbed, not just socialist, communist, leftist, Marxist. And uh, so your situation at Delaware is no different at all. Yeah. And I'm afraid if Princeton and Delaware were the exceptions to the rule, there would be a lot of hope, but I'm afraid they're not the exceptions to the rule. They are the rule. So. So Delaware has opposed your position on climate change? Officially, yes. They've opposed almost everything I've done. They, they see, you know, of course, climate change is a moneymaker for most universities. So the last thing they really want to do is disc climate change. Uh, they want to embrace it because that brings money into the university and makes them richer. And so as a result, that's the kind of thing they want to propose. And so anybody uh, that goes against that must be dismissed or worse. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the whole idea that they're open to alternative points of view and debate and everything, I'm seeing that in Canada, most, if not all of the universities, just simply have a woke point of view and you disagree at your risk is the same in the U.S.? Yes, and probably more so in spades. I mean, there was an article came out in the uh, student newspaper about how I was a Christian and therefore opposed to climate change because I, you know, the Neanderthal uh, evangelical Christian view is to destroy the earth as fast as you possibly can. And so I pointed this out to a colleague of mine who was a Muslim, and he said, you know, the Muslim Student Association would be upset if they did this to me, meaning him. And Mm -hmm. so he suggested I talk to the diversity officer of the university. And I did. And essentially, instead of saying, you know, we foster diversity and diversity of opinions, and this seems to be out of line, her argument was, well, essentially, if you're being criticized, maybe it's your fault. You should think about uh, apologizing to the university. Wow. Wow. That's what I said. Wow. Well, I've read that you are you at some point you were holding a position with NASA that uh, President Trump had tried to get you involved in straightening out a government agency. Am I right about that? Well, it's not NASA. It was the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration or NOAA. And technically, my position, I had two positions. My position was the assistant deputy secretary of commerce for environmental observation and prediction. And after about a month and a half, we figured out I was in the wrong place. 
that I should have been in the White House all along. So I was detailed over to the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy as the executive director of the United States Global Change Research Program. And when I say all that in one sentence, it's 28 words. And sort of the argument I've made is, I've learned, is that the amount of power you wield is inversely proportional to your title. So president is one word, lots of power. My title had 28 words. I had almost no power at all. (laughs) I was in the White House for nine weeks uh, working on the National Climate Assessment. Of those nine weeks, there was Christmas, New Year's, Thanksgiving, the American Meteorological Society meeting. And then the last week we were sent back to NOAA, which is where I was originally housed. So of those nine weeks, five of them, we did nothing at all. So literally my, my period over there uh, amounted to very little, but uh, I, I tried to help push it forward, which it, it, was, it was a weird game of three-dimensional chess where the deep state people were trying to delay it so they could blame the Trump administration for doing nothing. However, I and the uh, director of the National Climate Assessment were trying to move it forward while all the time being blamed for uh, stonewalling it. It was just a bizarre scenario. So this deep state idea, this is not a hoax. This is not an exaggeration. No, that's part of the issue is, you, you know, you hear things in the media and you hear people refer to it, but you've got to go behind the scenes and see how the sausage is made to really figure out what's going on. And that's what I found is that the people ingrained in the system are the ones that make all decisions. And we say, you know, term limits and talk about those kinds of things. It's not the elected people that make any difference. It's the people that are there from administration to administration that have built their entire career. And and, and some of them, I think, just play along. I mean, I've talked to people in state government uh, at the Delaware Department of Natural Resource and Environmental Control, and they've confided to me, you know, some of the things that we're doing in terms of climate change in the state uh, doesn't make sense to me. And I said, well, why don't you speak out? And the answer is, you got to be kidding. I've got 24 years invested. I don't want to throw away, you know, a pension after 30, you know, that I'll get after 30 years. So I'm just going to go along and do what I'm told. And that's part of the problem is that everybody. You know, uh, Tom and David, I was kind of feel like I was at EPA at the very beginning of the formation of the deep state. When uh, we passed, began to pass uh, laws about the environment, and sadly, on my part, I was involved in creating the Environmental Protection Agency and uh, got Nixon to sign it into law. We were writing legislation to protect our water, our air, uh, our soil, uh, all reasonable legislation. But I worked uh, with EPA and various blue ribbon committees for a decade. In 1980, they developed the, the Superfund Act, which was absolutely horrible, and I tried to stop it without success. But 1980 was really the watershed when, from, from that point on, everybody hired in the government were, were leftists, were socialists, were environmental radicals. And so uh, there's been uh, now almost 42 years of everybody moving into the government with very rare exception, uh, having a socialist viewpoint. And that's what you saw in the White House. And it's what every other person I know that had 
high-level uh, government jobs for a short term under Trump uh, echoed the, the same analysis. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. And, and what bothered me is that, you know, when I came in, it was the September before the, the election. So literally, I was there for four months, five months, something like that. And in particular, a lot of the positions that should have been filled with political appointees had not been filled. And so they were running with people from the deep state that had been promoted to these positions in order to just fill a seat. And so the worst thing can be is when you've got somebody that has no goal, no intention of following on as to what the goals of the administration are, that's sitting in seats of power, supposedly political seats, uh, therefore privy to everything that's going on, you can see where you get all sorts of undermining of the of agendas, things just don't happen. And I, I don't know why they hadn't gotten people in there that made sense all along. That was the one problem. And some of the people they put in just weren't even, even as political appointees, weren't necessarily in line with what the administration wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can we go back to the introduction? You said, well, you're the recipient of the 2002 Boeing Autometric Award from uh, the American Society of Photogrammetry and Remote Sensing. Can you tell us what what is all that? Photogrammetry, what does that mean? Photogrammetry is the old process of being able to determine things from air photos. I mean, when we had the uh, you know SR-71 Blackbird and the U-2 spy plane, photogrammetry was an idea where they, they'd take pictures and come back and then people would look at the picture and try to determine what on gr- what is that on the ground that we think we see. And mm-hmm. so this has been a society that's developed around remote sensing and photogrammetry from uh, looking at a satellite. We were looking at satellite records of cropland and trying to figure out, in particular using harmonic analysis, how we could document differences between different types of vegetation and different characteristics on the surface. And mm-hmm. they thought that was innovative back in 2002. And that's why uh, I and two colleagues um, now at the University of Kansas were awarded the uh, prize. You'll get a kick out of the fact that when I started teaching at Ohio State in 1964, the first grant proposal that I uh, wrote and was awarded was on uh, photogrammetry uh, long before it became as uh, sophisticated as it even was in 2002 when you won the award. I got money to sit on the door of a small airplane taking color pictures of the ground uh, with an infrared camera and trying to determine whether there might be uh, a shallow groundwater and also determining the health of, uh, of plants. And I kind of laugh about what I did then and what you did 40 years later and what is done today from the air. It's truly amazing. Sure is. That is so cool. I want to start an argument with you, David. I think uh, our listeners might enjoy it, or I'll be surprised if you uh, agree with me. But for the last 10 years, I've been railing against scientists on our side, as prominent as you, who, while they know that human-caused climate change as a really concern for the population is an absolute fraud, 
they still spend their careers trying to find what man's impact is, even though it's many zeros to the right of the decimal point, and everyone agrees it's insignificant, but it opens the door to the opposition to say, well, you're really agreeing that man has an impact. We're just arguing over the numbers. And I think these people I call lukewarmers, prominent people, smarter than me, better reputations than I in science, persist in uh, spending much of their careers finding an inconsequential number of man's impact. What is your position, David? See, my argument is that a lot of what we see from human impact is much more local. Uh, that's been the issue. I mean, when um, I think it was Reed Bryson was flying over India, he noticed that the pollution in India was creating an obscuration of the surface, and that was changing the characteristic and said, maybe that is having an effect. But the question is, is that a global effect or is that a local effect? And I think that's a local effect. You know, I'm often asked, for example, in northern Delaware, are we seeing more floods or more droughts? And I think, yes, we are. I think it's human induced. I think it has everything to do with land use change, has nothing to do with climate change. And again, it's a local phenomenon. So globally, I think humans have nearly a negligible effect on the planet. But locally, we can have a major effect. Urban heat islands, I haven't even talked about, but there's, uh, there's lots of th ways in which the local environment can change. And the problem is to go back to, um, uh, name escapes me, but he was a Massachusetts uh, representative, very big. He's, his famous quote was, all politics are local. And I like to say all climate change is, as people view it is local. Uh, I remember back when in my backyard, I would see snow by Christmas and now I don't, but you're looking at your backyard and that could be urban heat island effect. That could be the fact that, you know, you, you've got different kind of grass down that doesn't, um, you know, allow the, the snow to grow or to, to gather. Um, and so it all becomes local. And so my, that's my concern is that, yes, humans can and do affect climates, particularly on local scales. But when we talk about global scale, I think the net impact of humans becomes, yeah, then, then we're talking about, uh, you know, what decimal place is important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the whole idea of a climate emergency on a global scale threatening the very existential situation for humankind. Obviously, that's just silly. Well, yeah, and at any time you ask economists, you ask people what climate change, you know, ranks relative to every other concern, it never shows up on the charts. Because, again, it's a local phenomenon, but spending gobs and gobs of money to try to stop it, you might as well be flushing it down the toilet. Mm -hmm. So you're certainly not a climate change denier. <laughs> you're, a, you're a climate change realist. Well, I think most people are never climate change deniers, and you and I both know why they use that term, because it fits the Holocaust denier narrative. But the idea is that, that we recognize climate changes because climate always has changed. I mean, we've gotten into this idea a long time ago, the saying climate is average weather. Climate is, the one I hate, is climate is what you expect, weather is what you get. And the implication, as I thought in the late 70s, uh, coming out looking for a college 
was that all the fun was in weather and that's the variation and climatology was for those people that couldn't handle the atmospheric dynamics and could only handle math as far as basic statistics because that's all you needed to calculate mean standard deviations, maximums, minimums. And that's what climatology was all about. And so it's not supposed to change. And so if it does change, that must be horrible. That must be devastating. We must be doing it and it must be stopped. And of course, when you recognize that climate changes, climate varies, climate dynamics exists. There are things that cause climate to change and vary. And we could almost go to the extreme, uh, it would be wrong, but to go to the extreme and say, climate sets essentially the roulette wheel and the probabilities of all the numbers. And then weather just spins the wheel and says, all right, here's what we get. Mm -hmm. Okay. But both of them do have dynamics. Both of them are, have fluctuations on long time scales, short time scales. And we've got to recognize that weather and climate or the atmospheric science continuum has a lot of variations on the entire scale from glacial time scales all the way down to changes in, in a minute or less. So meteorology has interesting things to look at. Climatology has interesting things to look at. And the two aren't separable necessarily. Mm -hmm. Well, our listeners have never heard that discussion expressed so precisely and accurately. David, that is fascinating even to me. It will help me explain that issue to people better in the future than I have done in the past. Uh, your, your grasp of this weather climate scenario is, is really awesome. Thank you. Well, we have to go for a break now, but David, after we get back after the commercial, maybe you could help our listeners, you know, understand what can they do to help educate their friends about climate change? You know, what are the major points they should focus on? Can we talk about that after the break? Sure. Okay, great. I'm excited to talk about a new product from Healthy Cell, AC11. This is a patented bioactive extract of Uncaria tomentosa from the Amazon rainforest. It supports cell DNA repair and health span. It's a dietary supplement. I'm excited to try it. Many are interested in longevity and attenuation of senescence. We know that telomere length and other uh, biologic measures are related to senescence in uh, 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 clinical and uh, preclinical studies, particularly of animal models. And I can tell you as a doctor, dietary supplements do hold the promise of attenuating repair and damage in our body due to stress, physical wear and tear, sunlight, etc. And there's a tremendous opportunity for supplements to help us in this area. And so Healthy Cell has brought a product to market for you to try as part of your health portfolio. So please go to healthycell.com and in the promotional code, list out loud for 20% off your first purchase of products from Healthy Cell. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of 2022 is upon us. Happy New Year, my fellow Americans. Eleanor Roosevelt says the future belongs to those who believe in the beauty of their dreams. 
May you realize your dreams in the new year we trust. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Our guest today, Dr. David LeGates, professor of climatology and an adjunct professor of statistics at the University of Delaware. He's been talking about some of the basics of climate change. So David, can you talk about what are your thoughts as to how listeners can help educate their friends about the human-caused climate change fraud? Well, I think the first thing that people need to do is become informed. And that's one of the things I'm hoping to be able to do through the Cornwall Alliance. Um, after I leave the University of Delaware, I want to work with Cal Beisner and the Cornwall as sort of an educational outreach. And I think one of the things we need to do is to be able to, to educate the people so they understand the process. I mean, you can't, you can't convince people of your position unless you understand why you believe what you believe. And so we have to, first of all, understand and, and get that information down. And then the second thing to remember is not to overly simplify everything. The other side loves to make it so simple that, you know, carbon dioxide is the magical climate control knob or it acts like a blanket, but that's not how it works. What we really need to do is recognize that the climate system is really complex and we can talk about individual components of it, but it's not simply just increased carbon dioxide, therefore temperature goes up, therefore more floods, more droughts, more hurricanes, more of everything that you don't wanna see. That's an awfully simplistic view and that's usually what you do if you don't understand the process or you're trying to make the process scary. Mm -hmm. And I think once people recognize that it's a very complicated system, it's very intricate, it has lots of checks and balances or what we call feedbacks, uh, negative feedbacks that keep things from running away. I think in particular, then you can start to talk about how the climate essentially is very well balanced. It's not balancing precariously on a tip and with just a little bit of push of more carbon dioxide or methane or something that we run away to either an ice covered or uh, earth or a fireball earth but rather there are lots of checks and balances that keep that from happening. And that has not happened in the past. And as I said, is not likely to happen in the future, barring things that we can't control like asteroid impacts or something ridiculous like that. To support what you just said about the complexity, a few years ago, another very prominent climatologist, Willie Soon, calculated that if you wrote a computer program that had all the variables that can affect climate and tried to solve a problem with the largest computer on earth, it would take 40 years for the computer to reach an answer. That's the, the ultimate in terms of the complexity. But I think what you just said, David, that the audience should understand that really the opposition that's trying to scare people is simplifying it to the point that virtually everything they say is, is wrong. And this is a, a very good point. Everybody tries to make things simple, but in this case, uh, it has definitely worked against us because it is, is not simple. And their scenarios of, as Tom mentioned, 
previously making climate warming and existential uh, threat is patently absurd. And it's intended just to control society by fear. And in fact, uh, it's never been about climate. It's basically about wiping out the nation that our founding fathers uh, gave us. Yeah, and that's that's exactly what I've been trying to say with essentially the, the, the climate change argument is that if you want to scare people, you make the, the, the argument really simple so they think they understand it, and you make it so simple that A leads to B leads to C, C is bad, so it's coming from A, we need to stop A, and A in this case is carbon dioxide. But the problem is you're not a climatologist until you start to understand all of the processes, which makes things very complicated and difficult. And once you start understanding this is a really complex system that is intricately balanced, that one thing doesn't change everything, then that's where we recognize that the argument falls apart. But in their argument, see, you make it simple, you can make people think they're an expert, and now we can scare them. Mm -hmm. So in other words, you want to treat people like adults, not these 1.5 to stay alive type childish type statements. We want to treat them like adults. Yeah, maybe we can't treat many of them like adults, but uh, um, hopefully we would, if you treat people like they're adults, maybe they will become adults. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What do you think of that 1.5 to stay alive? Oh, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, there, was, there was an article just came out I saw last month in um, Forbes. It said they've linked 5,083,173 deaths last year to climate change. Mm -hmm. And that they estimated was approximately 10% of all deaths on the planet. Now, when you get numbers out to the individual number, I mean, the, the last thing, you know, 173, it sounds like they're counting people. And when you look back at that study, you found that they didn't count people. They took the amount of deaths back in about, you know, 1850 versus a now, uh, said, what's the temperature difference? And let's run a regression equation to figure out how much that is. And in fact, you know, so you get headlines that say 5 million people died last year of climate change. Of course, that's completely ridiculous. But they get it published. It's in the, in the Lancet of all places. And so people assume it makes total sense. I mean, part of the problem is the, the science establishment has gone, has, has gone. That's uh, the only way of putting it is it's no longer science. It's politics, too. And that's the scary thing. Mm -hmm. You're going to work with the Cornwall Alliance. Tell our audience a little bit about what the Cornwall Alliance is and what your role would uh, for a scientist to be with them. I always uh, thought the Cornwall Alliance was mostly a religious organization. Well, it's a collection of theologians, uh, economists, climatologists who are interested in um, the technical term is the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. And the idea is in particular, how do we, um, as uh, you know, God commands us to do care for the poor, how do you do that? Well, is climate change a significant problem that's going to affect the poor, as we always hear? Is therefore, should we be focusing on climate change? And the answer is no, because that's not the problem. In fact, if you want to help the poor, being, making them economically viable is the best way to do it. And if you want to save the environment, the best way to do it is to make everyone economically viable. 
When you're fighting for food, clothing, shelter, and security, then the environment doesn't even count. It's why people in India, for example, use the Ganges as their water source and as their sewer. There's nothing else they can do. They're fighting for some substance. But once you get past that point, then you can start to take care of your environment. You can start to be more environmentally friendly. But that's the point is to get people to that stage as opposed to starting there from the beginning. And so I think that's uh, one of the things that Cornwall Alliance is very much interested in is how do we care for the environment in a truly uh, applied uh, framework rather than just simply this environmental earth is everything to us and we've got to protect it at all costs, even if, as some people say, we need to eliminate all humans which sounds ridiculous and is. Well, you know, at a number of the climate change conferences that I've been to held by the UN, there's also a very strong anti-capitalist point of view being promoted by many of the activists there, as if somehow if we're all poor, we're going to end up with a cleaner planet. But you're saying it's the opposite. Yeah, I mean, think about it. Socialism, communism, they have always been the, the cleanest environments, haven't they? Uh, yeah, uh, I mean, I, I, one of the things I, I'm being facetious, yes. I mean, when you compare East Germany and West Germany, for example, you find that West Germany, obviously being the capitalist society, actually had cleaner environments, actually took care of their people much better. Everything was better, which is why they had a wall between the two, was to keep people from going from East to West, not from West to East. Same mm -hmm. thing with North and South Korea. There's other places you can talk about as well. Generally speaking, socialism, communism does not make for a cleaner environment. It makes for a dirtier environment. And it's completely opposite to what you would expect from that sort of evil, dirty capitalist society. Mm, so they're totally upside down on this one, as usual. <laughs> they're always, yes, they're always upside down. That's correct. Huh. Wow. Now, what do you think about these wind and solar stations that are popping up all over the place, supposedly to stop climate change? I mean, surely this is just making the whole electricity infrastructure quite, quite weak. It is because, I mean, the, the argument my friend points out very clearly is that one of the things you have to do is you have to essentially back up the energy supply unless you're willing to have the energy go off right now because wind and energy, wind and solar uh, are not dispatchable. The idea is it could stop, the sun could stop shining right now, the wind could stop blowing, and unless you've got an online source of energy, usually from fossil fuels, then essentially you're going to have a blackout and places are going into blackouts. But the other thing people forget is that wind farms, wind, wind turbines, people, I hate calling them farms, but wind turbines and solar panels all require various heavy metals and rare earth metals that are difficult to get. And we used to get them by strip mining, but we recognize strip mining is a fundamental problem. We've stopped doing that. But in other countries, third world countries, China, for example, manufactures or produces a lot of these simply because they allow strip mining. They allow those kinds of environmentally degradatory type of things. So what people think is clean and green energy is actually anti-environmental in the process of creating some of these materials that are necessary to produce a wind turbine or a solar panel. Yeah, exactly. So made with strip mining should be the advertisement for wind turbines. <laughs> yes, yes. 
But see, yeah, it's out of sight, out of mind. It's not happening locally. And as this stuff magically appears on your desk. It looks clean. Everything's fine. We don't ask, you know, who did they use to mine it? How did they mine it? How did it get here? You know, we don't ask those questions because now it looks clean and green when clearly it isn't. Whenever we talk about uh, wind and solar uh, in other shows, Tom has linked when it becomes a podcast to uh, a two minute segment of the movie uh, Planet for Humans, in which Jeff Gibbs, the director uh, with financial support, went all around the world and filmed everything you just described, David, in terms of how we get the various minerals and, and metals to make wind and solar and compressed it into a, a two-minute video, which is absolutely fantastic. And when you watch the two minutes, you know instantly that wind and solar are not the least bit green, but create all kinds of both environmental and human degradation in the development of these materials. It's interesting, David, we're seeing more and more on the left, people are starting to wake up to the fact that, you know, and wind and solar are not environmentally friendly when you consider how they're made. Do you see that they are waking up gradually to this? I'm not. But then again, I've been hanging out at a university and they tend to be the last people to admit they were wrong. Now, President Trump did not get very involved with climate change or wind and solar subsidies. What was going on there? I mean, he seemed to be more practical than most of our presidents have been. That I don't know. It could have been that there were some people at the White House that were more tuned to, yes, the climate is changing. Yes, it's human activity. Yes, we should be doing something about it. So the best thing we can do is say nothing at all. I know that a lot of people in Congress get scared of this, that they're afraid to be on the wrong side of this because you'll lose the next election. I don't think that was necessarily coming from the high level of the administration, but it was sort of the, the mid-level administration where I guess I was that effectively was sort of saying we need to sort of ignore that and maybe get through the next election, see what happens, and mm-hmm. that never happened. David, our mutual friend, Will Happer, had the good or bad fortune to be selected by Mr. Trump to be his uh, climate advisor during the, I guess it was the third year of Trump's presidency. And he echoed the very words that you described. Uh, He spent a year there and he was able to sit down with Trump in the over office about every uh, two weeks and discuss the climate issue in, in a way that hoped we could bring the message to the public that uh, it was not a threat and that a little warming uh, was not going to hurt anything. In fact, it was going to green the earth even more. And he found that it was just not enough, high enough priority for Trump to use whatever power he had. So we always put it on the back burner. But Will Happer did make it clear that Trump did agree with your position and my position and his position. And he finally just uh, gave up and resigned because he wasn't having any effectiveness at all. And I go back even further than that. I did some work directly for Mr. Trump 
in the first two years of his presidency to give him the wherewithal and the information to know for sure that man's impact on the temperature of the planet was very small, uh, even to the point where the White House called and thanked me the very day that Trump pulled out of the Paris Accord, the accord which Mr. Biden has gone back. So we know his heart and mind were in the right place, but politics is a, a difficult business. Yet I think that I wish Will were still there while I was there because that would have been much more useful. But yeah, I think, see, I was never that high up that I ever, I ever mentioned, ventured into the White House at all. But I do think that one of the problems came about after he pulled out was that the Office of Science and Technology Policy frowned upon any climate change discussion. And they thought of it as, in the politest sense, as a third rail and in the less polite sense, more as a Trump is wrong, so we're just not going to allow him to go down that road. That's why I think that what you were seeing from, from that perspective was nothing appeared to happen in the latter two years. And I imagine it's more than just the Office of Science Technology Policy. And that's where I think uh, frustration set in with Will, and that's why he left. And Essentially, that's why I probably wouldn't have hung around much longer had the Trump administration gone into a second term. Mm -hmm. Now, David, what is the positions of most state meteorologists on the human-caused climate change issue? You know, I get the impression they're more practical than a lot of the theoretical people. It used to be that way. I think the case used to be, if I go down the list, generally they were more data-oriented, observational-oriented but see, now everything has been tied to climate change. And so funding of climate centers now uh, and state climatologists is all tied to climate variability, climate change, that kind of funding. You've got a lot of blue states that are pushing for climate change uh, action plans and so forth. And so they turn to the state climatologist and say, are you on my side? And for like me, when you're not, well, we'll terminate you and get somebody in here who will go along with us. Oh, lovely. And, uh, so I think it, it has considerably changed in the days since Pat Michaels and I were both uh, state climatologists. Unfortunately, the world is moving hard to the, or our world is moving hard to the left. And I'm afraid it's going to take a whole cohort of people of students to finally uh, pass on before they say, wait a minute, what are we up to? I mean, it's sort of like the old um, Lysenkoism in the Soviet Union. You know, Lysenko said essentially uh, environmental determinism rather than genetics determines what peas will do. And so Mendel's genetics were shunned. It took a whole group of people to pass away before someone at the end back, I think it was Khrushchev, finally said, all right, enough of this. We are going to have to go back to real science. And mm -hmm. they did it for agricultural purposes because it set their agriculture back. We're going to find climate is going to be setting us back economically, politically, scientifically, almost every. The problem is it touches everything. That statement you just made, David, uh, supports my level of optimism that we're nearing the bottom of the hole that has been dug by the climate change fraud. You can comment on why I'm so optimistic. 
I believe the midterm election next November, it is a foregone conclusion that uh, the Democrats will be thrown out of power in a very big way. I think the uh, majority that the Republicans, not all of whom are particularly good and knowledgeable, but there are enough of them that will hold a major majority that I think some things can change. To my knowledge, the House of Representatives controls the budget. And so the first big change that will happen is we will stop using your expression, flushing money down a, a toilet, trying to uh, fight changes in, uh, in climate. So I'm really optimistic that not perhaps not too many things can be done, but enough can be done to turn the direction of our ship, which is going in a way that you have described it as clearly to the left. It might take 10 years, but I'm also absolutely positive that we'll, uh, we'll get a Republican president in 2024 who will also maybe not have the strongest spine, but will at least be a, a Joe Manchin type who will uh, stop allowing money to be uh, wasted and changing the whole narrative of what is going on with climate. I hope you're right, but I'm afraid this is another place we disagree. Uh, my concern is that even if the next election shifts everything back to the Republicans, I am always amazed that they never have a true spine, at least when it comes to climate change issues. It's almost like, well, we don't want to touch it. It is the third rail. Just let everything go along and we'll do other stuff. And the Republican Party has often disappointed me in places. Let me say, I'm a, I'm a pessimist by nature. And the reason for that is twofold. One, if it's as bad as I think, I'm already prepared. And secondly, if it's not as bad as I think, then it's a, a refreshing change. I don't enjoy your optimism, but I hope you're right. Mm -hmm. Now, in Canada, it's, it's always frustrating. People don't know what they can do to actually help turn the debate around. I mean, what do you think, generally speaking, in the United States, the average person can do? Should they be writing letters to the editor or calling to talk shows or, or what should they do? Getting involved. I mean, part of the problem is that, you know, you look at the other side and, and somebody said it to me locally, said what will happen is conservatives will get a group of people together and we'll stand on a, 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 in, out in front of legislative hall and we will protest uh, this Saturday and we will have a rally and we go home. He said, but the, the liberals, there's much fewer of them, but they're always inside legislative hall talking to the representatives, talking to the senators, talking to the governor, and essentially they get their way because mm -hmm. they're constantly around. And I think that's what we need is people that are more active, people that get involved locally in school boards, uh, state elections, federal elections, get involved, starting work with senators, work, work with representatives. You don't have to be an elected official to have an importance. And we start playing their game. And I'm not saying we adopt rules for radicals from Saul Alinsky, but the idea is that we have to start playing the game by, to win. And we have to continue to get in their face, get the, the I don't want to say it that way, but get their mater the material into them so they understand the process, they understand why we believe what we believe. And it's not just sort of a one-off, we got together, had a nice rally this afternoon, and you never hear from us for another six months. 
because the other side is there all the time. We need to be there all the time. Yeah, there's a book actually written called Rules for Radical Conservatives by David Kahane. And it's really modeled on the opposite, the Rules for Radical by Alinsky. And I encourage people to look it up, Rules for Radical Conservatives. There's a very nice audible version of it. I'll put it under a link to it under the podcast that goes up on Monday because Wow, it's got phenomenal strategies, just like Dr. Legates is saying right now. And Steve Dace has a book, I think, Rules for Patriots, Rules for Patriots, which mm. is his take on what we should be doing as well. Yeah, I'll look that up too and put the link on for people. Steve Dace, D-E-A-C-E. I can support my optimism. Well, I've always felt that if you're optimistic, you're probably more effective in uh, working toward what you hope will be the optimistic outcome. And while I see you're spending all your time and now joining the Cornwall Alliance, while you're a pessimist, you're going to be working 24-7 to change the minds of people in the right direction. Generally, pessimists are not effective. They're so down in the mouth that they don't get out and work toward a, a better outcome. Uh, I just finished uh, the first in a series of optimistic uh, essays uh, that I began by by quoting a German economist by the name of Ernst Wolf, who gave a speech just last August. And after going through the litany of all the terrible things the left is uh, has been doing to society, he points out that the one mistake they've made is essentially ignoring the public, ignoring our innermost feelings because they're, they're power mad and they're running roughshod over us, which certainly is true of the Biden administration. And he thinks that will be their fatal flaw, that little by little, the public is uh, waking up to the damage that in our case, this administration is doing virtually to uh, every citizen. You also made a comment that the, uh, the left is in the minority, and I totally echo that. I doubt if we have many more than 20% Marxists in our population. Uh, unfortunately, we have such a huge middle ground that just knows what they read in the papers, and they need to be awakened. And I'm quite confident that uh, every morning a few thousand of them wake up to the reality of something terrible this administration is doing and uh, getting they're, they're going to get more involved uh, and they, that's why they're clearly going to vote uh, Republican in the uh, next House election. I agree with you, the Republicans uh, are, are generally spineless, but I'm also seeing a new breed of, of people running for the House that, uh, that have a spine. An awful lot of former uh, military people are running for house seats, and I think uh, they will take action when they take over in January of 2023. And on that, I think we both agree. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just end off because we only have a couple of minutes to go. Could you tell us about your testimony before the U.S. congressional committees? I think the first one was with Willie Soon and I and uh, Michael Mann. And uh, it was interesting because I think Willie had just become a naturalized citizen. He was under severe pressure from the Smithsonian Institute 
to not say anything or say anything of controversy, which in a hearing like that, anything you would say likely is controversy. That was back in the discussion of, I think it was after ClimateGate, uh, but particular, there was a, a row that went out in the uh, journal Climate Research. I can't go into detail too much on what happened there, but essentially uh, Willie and I and Sherwood and Craig Itso had published, an, and Sally Balayunas had published an article in Climate Research that called into question the Little Ice Age and the medieval warm period. There was a question raised to the editor whether we had just simply published the paper without peer review or it had gone through peer review. So it was evaluated uh, by the editor who said, Krista Friedis, who was the editor, has done a good and fair job. And so then Michael Mann and company, what we found out in particular in the uh, ClimateGate uh, uh, emails was essentially that they said to him, uh, well, we're, if you don't criticize this paper, we're going to essentially destroy your journal. And the journal being a, a publishing house, they would lose lots of money. So the publisher came back and said, well, we probably should have done other things and maybe we shouldn't have published it. And that was part of what the discussion came out in the, uh, the hearing where essentially, I think it was Jeffords who had recently switched from a Republican to an independent so he could throw the uh, Senate to the Democrats was running it. He turned to Michael Mann and said, can you explain what happened at Climate Research? And Mann hesitated. And so I just started said, I said, well, I'm a review editor. I can tell you what happened. Uh, and yeah. I started down the road what, looking at Jeffords the whole time, expecting him to tell me to shut up, that he had asked the question of Michael Mann and Michael Mann was to answer the question. And I just kept going and he looked at me like a deer in the headlights, not knowing how to stop this. And I don't know why he was in charge. And so he let me tell the whole story the way it was, as opposed to a varnished version that Mann was likely to give. And finally, at the end, he said, well, I'll let Michael Mann have the last say. And Mann just said, well, DeFridis is an odd character. He publishes a lot in newspapers. Yeah. And I he remember turning to him and saying, that's the best you could do. We have to wrap up there because we're out of time, unfortunately, but I thank you for doing the testimony and it's oh. wonderful to hear that sometimes the good guys can win. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, this is Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris with our guest, Dr. David Legates, Professor of Climatology and Adjunct Professor of Statistics at the University of Delaware. So we're signing out from the other side of the story.